Hello, my friends. I'm so glad that you could join me today. Welcome back to another episode of Anything Goes. Hello, Anything Goes, friends and family. Welcome back to another episode, and welcome back to another week. Uh, no doubt we have seen a lot about going on going on in the U.S. here about what's what decisions are trying to be made about what should happen with what went on last week. Uh, so while that can tend to permeate a lot of what's going on, and rightfully so, um, given what's gone on recently with me, I thought I would take a a few little, or I would take a few discussion points here, but before I do that, I wanted to get into just a little bit of interesting uh, news that I had seen. For those of you who have been following along for a while, you've heard me talk about um, cryptocurrency before, uh, and in particular, Bitcoin. Well, for those who have been following that sort of stuff, then you would have seen that we had a very interesting movement within the last a week, maybe a little longer than that, on Bitcoin, where it surged up to, I think, as much as like 42,000 or 43,000, maybe a little more, um, which is the highest it has ever been. And now it's kind of dropped back down a little bit. Now, for someone who's been following it and invested in it to some extent with what I could, I've learned the patterns enough to know that Cryptocurrency markets do not fluctuate in the same ways that traditional markets like stock markets tend to. And so I found some humor in hearing people, pundits on news shows or whatever, talking about how it had such a high peak and now it's dropped back so much to 12% drop or 6%. And for anyone who's been following and invested in cryptocurrencies, you know that's not odd. That's not odd at all. Cryptocurrencies uh, do that. They fluctuate. They always have. They always will, I'm sure. Um, but it is still interesting to note, because for anyone who has been invested in that, if they've been, whether you're a hodler or you're playing some sort of actually buy the dips or whatever you've been doing, this has been a great opportunity for some growth and some actualization of gains. So, interesting time there. What I will say, and this is something that I noticed, is I, I have tended to find, as, as for those of you who have followed me for a while know, I'm very fascinated by and had um, some level of career in patterns and pattern recognition with some of the stuff I did in the military, but also outside of military and civilian life. And if there's one thing I can say about what I've tended to find with cryptocurrency markets is that the way it has fluctuated has definitely changed once we've gotten, it's become a bit more mainstream. But one thing that I have found interesting is that it is, a, in general, a pretty decent measure of a fear measure for, for a society, for markets. Uh, because what I've tended to see is that as the economy gets... Uh, a little shaky in traditional markets, as there's concern about the future of societies, people run to cryptocurrency and buy in. 
and then they sell again and back and forth. Now, that's interesting. Not exactly the best strategy in my opinion, but I'm also what you would classify more as a hodler in crypto terms. I, I tend to buy and hold. Um, I'll buy on the dips when I see that it's a significant enough dip, but I don't sell a whole lot. Um, not unless I'm trying to actualize some gains. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I would say I'm more of a hodler. But that said, it is an interesting measure to see kind of how people feel about their own economies, their traditional investing markets, and how they now tend to use this as a means to jump when they feel concerned in traditional markets. So, for those who have followed on cryptocurrency, I think you've you can you can understand this has been a uh, interesting past I would say probably past couple of weeks, given all the other crazy stuff that has happened recently. On the aspect of markets, something else to make mention of that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. Um, at least here in the United States, is that I know there is a growing optimism with a Democratic president coming in and a Democratic majority in the House and uh, Senate. And one of those things that has gained traction and optimism for is, other than green energies, has been another type of green. Uh, referred to by many names, the devil's lettuce, the electric lettuce, the wacky tobacco, weed, dank, whatever you want to call it. We're talking about marijuana. That has gained more interest because, as we have seen, typically in more democratic, uh, well, let me rephrase that, in more democracy, uh, democrat, that's the word I'm looking for, in more democrat-heavy areas, there tends to be more openness to the idea of legalizing, at least at a state level, and pushing for federal to make it, to decriminalize the use of marijuana for medicinal purposes, and then some have gone so far as to make it recreational uh, legalized. Now, for many who are listening in my audience in other places of the world, for many of you, you you're, that's no surprise. You're like, okay, yeah, great, so what? But I do know that in others, there is more of a conservative view that, you know, still kind of goes off of the old reefer madness ideas of it being a gateway drug and all of that. And I'll just be up front and tell you, I've smoked it. I've smoked it many a times in my life. Um, never had a problem with it. I never ventured into other things because of smoking it. Um, I think the worst I could say I ever did while being under the influence of it was that I laughed a lot and I probably ate more junk food than I should have. <laughs> uh, you know, I would have what I felt were philosophical, philanthropic, I don't know, ideals that would come into my head, but I never remembered them. <laughs> that all said, there's more uh, optimism within those communities about that having more traction and growing more legalization for it in the U.S. And certainly as, a, as an investor in traditional stock markets, a small portion of my portfolio has been in a few different um, companies invested into medical marijuana and such. So there is more optimism for that coming into this new presidency here. 
And so I also see that as being an, a means by which we could see some economic growth given the craziness that we've had with this pandemic and how it's affected markets and companies and small businesses. Also, the interesting thing with that is, at least this is my hope, is that as this becomes legalized, I would hope that there can be a push for those who were uh, incarcerated simply for having some in their possession. Now, I'm not talking about distribution, uh, although that could be brought into question as well, uh, potentially. But for those who maybe got caught with having, you know, less than an ounce or, or whatever, or they had a couple of joints on them, uh, marijuana cigarettes, whatever you want to call them, to, to then go back and say, well, if we're going to decriminalize this, then should we also get let those people come out of jail who were incarcerated for that, which, at least here in the U.S., and that may be the case in other places, has had a disproportionately high part of that, society, uh, that population be people of color who have been incarcerated for possession, not even intent to distribute or anything like that, but just possession of a small amount or paraphernalia. Um, so I'm kind of hopeful that as this does get decriminalized and, and legalized, which that's my hope, um, I also hope that we can see some reform within how that happens legally and those people who were uh, incarcerated for those small offenses can be let go. Because if we're going to decriminalize it, then let's also no longer make those people a criminal. And in my personal opinion, I say that that should be wiped from their record as well. Don't know if that would happen, but that's my hope. So I bring that up because recently in New York, the, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who has become rather popularized in the U.S. given his stance and his frankness about his discussions about pandemic actions uh, in New York has recently begun addressing for the third time the idea of the state of New York decriminalizing, legalizing to some extent, the use of and sale of pardon me, medical marijuana. So something to be looking at there as well that could be of interest. And as we've seen with the uh, what happened in the state of Colorado when it was legalized, the tremendous amount of tax dollars that came into the state government, I think were a great testament of how much money can be made off of this. And also the fact that we can finally remove this ridiculous, long-lasting stigma of what propaganda films like uh, Reefer Madness created, which is to create this mania of, you know, almost McCarthyistic kind of view that, you know, this this green scare as opposed as opposed to a red scare that anyone who's involved in it is crazy and terrible and if they smoke it they'll all become crazy and terrible friends let me tell you that's not the case if you have a an addictive personality then regardless of what it is you're going to find yourself getting into other things because of the addictive tendency within you not because of the actual drug I'm not saying that some drugs can't be addictive in the nature of what they are, for sure. But I would argue, in my experiences having lived in places like Colorado, around people who were 
parts of dispensaries and who owned grows, who worked at dispensaries helping to pick up cancer patients that would come and buy their medical marijuana, things like that. Having a friend that I knew that's since passed on uh, who was battling with multiple sclerosis and witnessing the difference he had in who he was as a person and his mental function when he was on the medical drugs they would give him versus when he would use medical marijuana instead. And I can tell you from those experiences, it has so much benefit. There was a documentary that came out in Netflix. I don't know if you can find it there anymore, but if you search the internet, I'm sure you can find it. It was a documentary called Charlotte's Web, and it's not the story about a pig and a farmer. That's that's not what we're talking about. Uh, I think it was called Charlotte's Web. Maybe it was called something else, but I think that's what they did. And it's it's a documentary about a family that had a daughter that would have, I think, something like 300 seizures a week. And they had tried all of the different medical ways to deal with it and just could not get it under control. And out of desperation, they started searching out more alternative medicine approaches because they just wanted something to help their, their little girl. And mind you, this little girl was not like you know, 12, 13, 14. She was young, in single digits, still very young. And as any good parents would do, they, they, they want to find ways to help their children and to alleviate the suffering and hurt that their children are in. And so out of desperation, they looked at alternative medicines and saw people recommending and talking about the fact that uh, CBD, not THC, but primarily the CBD components of marijuana had very strong effects on the nervous system and helping with a lot of those issues. And there's videos you can find. There was a, a gentleman, I can't remember the name of the video, but there's a video you can find it on YouTube probably, of a gentleman that had uh, some sort of palsy or something to that extent where he shook all the time. He had done all the typical medicines. They had him try CBD just uh, a CBD heavy smoking of marijuana. I may be wrong. It may have been the entire plant and not just a CBD heavy. It may have had some THC. But either way, within a few minutes, very short few minutes, the man went from being shaky and, and out of control of his body to being able to have normal conversation and a steady body movement. So at any rate, this documentary about this little girl, we see that in just within the first dosage of the CBD oil, which is, I think, what they were using, she had a drastic drop in, in um, seizures from 300 to down to, I think, one or less than one a week, which is significant. And so there's all of this evidence that has been mounting for quite some time to show that this plant has good effects. We're finding uh, more and more that it has a, the ability to help people with PTSD. It has the ability to help people some with depression. Obviously, if you have eating issues and you don't tend to eat as much as you should, that can help to stimulate your hunger, as anyone who has partaken of it knows. <laughs> uh, and I think it also can help with depression in that most of the encounters I've seen with people, actually, I think I would say all of the encounters I've seen with people, I have not seen one person engage in the use of marijuana 
and become depressed because of it. They may get a little paranoid, but that tends to happen because of their own paranoia before they go into the experience, and then it gets amplified. Nonetheless, optimism here on that regard, because it looks like there may be some opportunity for that to happen in the U.S., and in a good time when we need that economic stimulation and growth. So we'll see what happens there. Well, we're about to take a break. Before we take a break, I wanted to address kind of what's coming up. Um, I wanted to, given everything we saw last week, I did a little diving around on the internet and um, just recently, this morning, got off of an interview with the producer for a uh, national uh, show uh, with a channel called NPR, National Public Radio. And for a segment they have called All Things Considered and their podcast called Consider This. I was interviewed today, asked a little bit about my experiences with walking through with a friend and also other people in my life who kind of got into the QAnon stuff and other conspiracies and the challenges that may have presented. So given that, coming up in the next section, I'm going to start talking a little bit about how do we talk to people that are conspiracy theorists and how do we still be kind in it? How can we engage that? Also, I thought it would be interesting to take a look at um, kind of the ideas of the seven stages of grieving. And I, I thought it would be interesting to look at it as it relates to the idea of a breakup. Not because we're talking about relationship breakups, but because I think the concept of it still fits what we're looking at with regard to conspiracy theorists. Um, in general. So we will be right back after this break and we'll start digging into that some. Hello Anything Goes family. Just wanted to take this moment to remind you that if you like this podcast and you'd like to see it continue to grow and improve, um, I welcome you to become a monthly supporter to the podcast. You can do so at anchor.fm forward slash Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H hyphen or dash Guzman, G-U-Z-M-A-N and the number three. There on that page, you'll find a button that says support. If you click on that button, you can become a monthly supporter to the podcast for as little as 99 cents a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month. The choice is up to you. And if you decide that you want to be a supporter larger than that, or you'd like to do a one-time gift, then you can click on that other button that says message, and I can certainly arrange that with you. And as always, my friends, I always love hearing from you. So if you'd like to send me a hello, you can click on that message button and let me know. Or if you'd like to be considered for a podcast, or if you have an idea for a podcast, send me a message. I always love hearing from you, my friends. And we are back, friends. Okay, well, as promised, I thought I would talk about a little bit of how it, what it looks like to talk to conspiracy theorists and how to still show kindness as we try to navigate them, if we can, out of that. And so I'll be looking at an article uh, written by Tanya Basu 
who wrote for the, um, what is it, MIT's Technology Review. It's an article she wrote there. And I'll also be looking at an article, let me see here, I'm trying to find it. Here we are, an article written on Psychology Today about the seven stages of grieving a breakup. And I know that seems silly, but you'll see how that fits in uh, just a little while. So given that, uh, we're going to start by first looking at the Psychology Today article, which was written by Dr. Suzanne Lachman. Lachman, um, forgive me if I'm getting it wrong. Uh, it was posted back in June 10th of 2014, and just kind of looking at the seven stages of grieving a breakup. And the reason I chose this article is because I really feel like while it may not be a, an, a relationship breakup, the idea of what happens when we become disillusioned with something, some ideal we carried, I think really carries some of the same uh, aspects of a breakup and grieving a breakup. So I thought it would be fitting, given what we're seeing and what I've been seeing as what happened last week at the Capitol in the U.S. and how some who I've been watching and keeping an eye on who have kind of gotten conspiratorial, whether to some extent or a heavy extent, to a small extent or heavy extent, uh, some of the reactions they've been having as they've seen the FBI coming after people and kind of the the term we use here is crawfishing, kind of back, trying to back away and distance themselves from the, and from association to it. So I thought it would be useful to talk through that. So looking at that, uh, I think it's important to remember that the best way we're going to be able to help people through this is, yes, we want to be honest. We want to have truth there, and we don't want to agree with them on things that are just outrageous. But how do we do so and understand where, what they're going through in the process of this dis disillusionment, this grieving, and still have uh, a way to be kind and to connect to them. So on that, I thought it would be of use to look through some of those aspects. So the first thing I'm looking at is about always, always, always being respectful in the way that we talk to them. And that can be really frustrating and hard to do because I've got some people that I know in my life who are so heavily entrenched in these beliefs that it's almost, it almost feels like beating your head against a wall, trying to talk to them and talk some sort of sense into them about where they're at and what the truth of the matter is. As you've heard me say many times, my mentor and father figure in my life instilled this phrase in me that you've heard me say many times, and I think it, it goes into what we see here. The reason it gets so frustrating talking to conspiracy theorists that are really heavily entrenched is because the, the mindset is exactly as my mentor said. And that is, I have made up my mind. Do not confuse me with the facts. And we've talked in previous episodes about the psychological things that occur there with dopamine levels and, and studies that have been done to show that. But nonetheless, this can be frustrating, and I acknowledge that. But as you've also heard me say, anything worth doing is worth putting effort into. If it doesn't cost something to you, time, energy, money, whatever, 
you may not have anything of any lasting value there. So that said, the first thing we want to think about is when we're engaging with people who have gotten heavily into conspiracy theories or even are starting to delve into it, always, always try to speak respectfully to them. And if you speak to anyone that's been involved in this stuff, uh, they'll, all, they'll pretty much always tell you the same thing. Without respect, without compassion and empathy, you're not going to get anyone to open their mind or heart to you. And that's critical. If they won't walk with you, if they don't hear you, they don't want to talk to you, you have no way to go anywhere with them. So the best thing you can do is to try and empathize where you can to show some level of respect to what's going on in the situation um, and to keep respect, compassion, and empathy there at all times. Because uh, when they feel like you're hearing them, even if you're not saying you agree, and you shouldn't say you agree if it's outrageous stuff, but hearing them can help. And these are things that I learned with what I did in the military and outside of the military. Mirroring, as you heard me say before, is a useful tool. When you hear, someone, when you hear them say something, you don't have to agree, but if you want to know more without having to get engage into what can seem like a debate, you can reflect back to them what they've said. If they say something like, but you don't understand, QAnon has talked about how there's corruption in the government and they're trying to help that. You can easily say something like, corruption in the government? And then just wait. Let them answer that for you and give you more clarification. In doing so, you indicate that you're hearing them. You're repeating back to them something they've said, which tells them you're engaged, you're listening to them. And you're also not trying to take over the conversation and throw in your own opinion. You're just saying, okay, well, tell me more. And in doing this, you help endear yourself to the person because they feel heard. They feel like you're interested. And that's a good place to be. That's that respect, that compassion, that empathy. Um, and I've had these encounters on social media with people I know where they talked about their frustrations about things with the government with regard to what happened last week and saying, yes, but there needed to be some revolution because our government politicians don't care about the people that they're supposed to be representing and there are people struggling and don't have money they need and all of these things. And there are pieces in that that I can relate to and say, yeah, it is terrible for people to be struggling. Yeah, nobody wants to be stuck in a situation like that. I can agree to that without agreeing to everything else being said. It's about finding your connection points with them as opposed to your differing points because it's easy to find differences amongst one another. The challenge is to find where you can relate to them. You don't have to swallow everything they believe, especially if it's outrageous. But you can usually find something you can connect on, even if it's just, if it's just acknowledging that that must be frustrating for them. So always, always, always speaking with respect, having respect and compassion and empathy for them will help you to open, have them have an open mind with you and keep an open heart to you. When it's possible and when it seems necessary to do so, go private. What I mean by that is, uh, you know, you might send someone a text or, you know, send them a DM instead of posting directly on their wall. Now, if you post something on your own wall, your own page 
a post you put out there and that person responds to it directly to you on that page, then maybe it's worth having that dialogue there. But if you see them post something on their own page, maybe instead of just posting back on there, send them a message and say, you know, directly, hey, I saw that you posted this and I, I, I had some questions about where you're coming from or what you're thinking about this. Um, I want to understand where you're coming from. In doing that, you can prevent some of the social media mob that happens where people want to jump in. Uh, they don't really contribute anything of value to the conversation a lot of times. They just kind of want to jump in and be like, yeah, what they said, which is not really helpful. And that's something I've learned, interestingly, with what I did in the military, but also with going through art school. As an artist in art school, you are required to be criticized. Every single art piece you do goes through a critique process, and your professors, your peers, all get an opportunity to critique your work. But there is one stipulation with that, and that is when you're critiqued, you can't say something like, I like it, or that's cool. It's an unacceptable answer because it contributes nothing to the conversation. And in this case, that's also the case there. What you don't want is people jumping in being like, yeah, what they said. Yeah, you, you take that. It's not helpful. Real criticism, real critique needs to come with something of meaningful input. And so sometimes it might be worthwhile to go into a DM. It also prevents them from feeling like, you know, they got egg on their face. While it may be tempting to want to throw egg on someone's face when you feel like they're being stubborn and ridiculous and outrageous, again, you may not win them over doing so. Chances are you won't. But if you send them a direct message, you can have that dialogue and not necessarily have them feel like, you know, they feel embarrassed because now they've been shown they're wrong. So... Always being respectful in how you communicate with them, trying to show respect and compassion and empathy as best you can, as best you know how. Going private on some of those conversations instead of blasting it to the world all the time is helpful. And, and an important thing in regard to that um, is test the waters. Um, what I mean by that is you can save a lot of energy and a lot of time if you can just ask Things like what it might take to change their mind. You know, what are you looking for? Like, how could I help you understand uh, this differently? Or what does it take for you? What would it take for you to change your mind about your views? At least there, it gives you more of an idea of how you can then engage the situation. Another thing in regard to that, right, is when we're talking about test the waters is you want to find ways that you can engage with them without it being a bother to them, without it feeling like an attack on them. And on that, there's actually a really great Reddit group I, I've uh, found in looking at other Reddit groups that I've been a part of, uh, trying to see what's going on. I've, I've followed one that's r slash QAnon casualties, which is one that's people talking about their frustrations and their challenges they've had with people that delved into QAnon and kind of the fallout that's been happening and people trying to you know, support each other through that. There's also one that's, I think, fairly popular that's a r slash change my view. 
Um, and it's, uh, as far as I understand, it's pretty well moderated. They're not a very like harsh group. And the idea there is that it's for people to come in and kind of challenge their own views and to sit in and see people challenging their own views and kind of watch how people dialogue through that. And so it's important to do that because the more information you have, the more clarification you have before you engage in that discussion with someone, the more likely you are to have alliance with them as far as friendship and having some open heart, open mind conversation with them. <clears throat> Another thing, and I've said this before, but I'll, I'll address it again, is agreement. There's always some sort of kernel of truth, and that those are the things you can try to connect to. Because most conspiracy theories, they have some element of truth, some element of something that we can all agree, agree upon. For example, right, like the whole Pizzagate thing, right? The idea of people using or sex trafficking children. I don't think there's anyone in their right mind that would disagree with that being reprehensible. That's a nugget of truth. Now, does that mean everything Pizzagate was saying is correct? No, by no means. But that is a nugget of truth you can connect to with that person. It's something that we all would say, yeah, of course that's, that's wrong, and it's crazy that people would do that. They shouldn't do that. And that gives that other person within that conspiracy a sense of some validation. You're not trying to validate everything that's wrong, but you can validate them on what's right. There's nothing wrong with that. And so finding that is also a means by which you can help ally yourself with that person. And uh, if for anyone that's been an educator, you've probably heard this, but even in business, they tend to talk about this, the idea of what they call the, the truth sandwich um, or the kind of positive sandwich, the idea that you tell something someone, someone something that's nice and then something that maybe isn't so great for them to hear, but it's something that needs to be addressed and then end with something nice. The same idea is true with what we would call like a, a truth sandwich, right? You use a fact, you talk about a fallacy, and then you talk about another fact. And there's a lot of ways that you can look at that, right? But essentially what it comes down to is you, you want to state something that's true, right? Like if they say with the Pizzagate situation, right? They talk about children being put into sex trafficking. That's a truth you can agree upon and say, yeah, you're right. Children should not be in sex trafficking. It shouldn't be happening. It's terrible. It's horrible. And then you can then approach a fallacy and say, but do we really think that this random pizza joint in Washington, D.C. is the, the focal point of all of this? Like a pizza place? Why that pizza place? Why not some big corporation that has money to do things, right? Um, and then you can end with another fact, right? You can find something else within that and say, yes, and this is also true. I agree with you on that too. Because if they feel like you're agreeing with them more than you're disagreeing with them, they can take the disagreement with stride. They may not agree with you on it, but they can take it with stride because they feel like you're hearing them and you are hearing them. You're agreeing with them on things that you can agree with them on. You're not just saying, no, you're wrong and you're an idiot and everything you're saying is stupid because that's not going to get you anywhere positive. 
We'll pick up more on this right after the break. All right, friends, we are back. Picking up where we were before, we were talking about the truth sandwich. Now, coming to another element that can be used, and this is an effective one. I've seen it used, and I've used it in consulting businesses and consulting individuals in their own life situations or in companies trying to figure out how to nav navigate culture issues within their company or different things like that, or even interview processes or business negotiations. This is something I've used in those regards as well as as an educator, and that is the Socratic method. What is that? It's essentially, in the simplest ways, it's using questions to help you probe um, a person's own argument so that they can find out for themselves if it stands up to scrutiny. And in this approach, right, this is this idea is challenging people to come up with their own sources and to defend their own positions. And by, by and large, this is probably going to be one of the more effective ways you can get some change going. But it requires those other things. It requires you being willing to be respectful at all times with them. Uh, going private if necessary. Testing the waters so that you're understanding what you're getting into. Finding areas where you can agree with them when they're there so that they feel like you're hearing them and you're allying with them when possible. Using that fact, fallacy, fact kind of approach or that truth sandwich approach. Say something that's a fact and you know stand with them on that fact that they've said. Mention something that you think may be more fal uh, of a fallacy and then address another fact they may have mentioned. And with the Socratic method when you're doing those things you're then using questions that help to probe their own argument. And I can tell you from experience and what I did in the military and outside of the military, there are two words that are going to be your best friend when you're addressing things oftentimes. And those are the words how and the words what. Or I should say the word how and what. Asking questions that start with how or what present you with the opportunity to gain more response than just a yes or no or short answer. For example, if I ask someone, why do you believe in QAnon? They may give you some rote response, but it may not necessarily inspire more thoughtful answers. Or if I say, do you think QAnon is correct? The answer is either yes or no. It's a very binary answer. But when you ask something like, how do you know QAnon is correct? How do you know that everything in QAnon is valid? Or if you go to the what side of it, what would it take for you to be convinced that QAnon was not correct? What would it take for you to realize that the pizza shop that they talk about in Pizzagate was not some pinnacle of evil as they've been portrayed? Those kinds of questions allow for more meaningful information to be given. It allows you to gather more intelligence on what's happening there, more information on what's happening there, than some questions. So I would strongly encourage you as you go through more of this Socratic method, ask how and what questions that are going to challenge them to present more than a yes or no answer. 
that are going to require them to think about things a little more and to give more and ask more questions than you give statements of fact to. Because the more you have them talking, the more information they give you that you can then use to approach this conversation with them with a better level of accuracy and more equipped to know how to relate to them through this situation you're trying to navigate them. So the Socratic method, which is the use of questions to help probe a person's own arguments to see if they stand up. If there are educators within my audience, and I'm sure there are, you understand this. As a good teacher, you're not going to just give your student the answer. I often encouraged my students that if they wanted to challenge me on something they heard me say that they felt wasn't fully accurate, I would tell them, that's fine, but you had better have evidence. So if you're going to say so, my requirements were this. You can challenge me, you can try to prove me wrong, but you have to have evidence. And you have to have found at least two to three, I preferred three or more, sources that are unrelated to one another validating that evidence. And I want sources that have very good, credible information. So more to the direct source, the better. That's my approach. And that's the approach I've taken in life because it works. The more that you can get that, the more you force that person to prove their own stance. And when they can't, then having that grace with them and having that rapport that you've established by being respectful, by being private with them, by testing the waters, by agreeing with them where you can find reasons to agree, by using that truth sandwich of fact, fallacy, fact, when they start realizing they may not be entirely accurate on what they believe, but you've treated them respectfully, kindly, they're more inclined to admit that to you. They're more inclined to admit they may have some error in their ways because they don't feel like they have to save face because you have treated them kindly through the process. So these are things that are of importance to consider. And there's a lot of situation in, situations in which we've seen this sort of stuff play out. Right, where we've seen these things happen. Now there's more to it than that, right? There's also, there's about 10 things that this article listed. I've gone through six. I'll go through the other four rather a little more quickly so that we can get to the other article. But those are gonna be rather related to what we've seen before. Uh, the, another one mentioned is be very careful with loved ones. Uh, and I'm just going to kind of quote what this article had to say about it here. It said, Every single person I spoke to hesitated when asked how to confront a loved one, like a sibling or parent, who believes in conspiracy theories. Many said they back off if the relationship is extremely close. And this is a quote here. You have to perform a calculation on whether it's worth it to engage. End quote. And that was quoted by uh, a person who moderates that um, Reddit group I mentioned earlier, uh, I Hate Dogs Too, which I, I don't agree with that. I love dogs, but hey, whatever. <laughs> Another quote here is that it says, how deeply do they believe it and how harmful is their belief? Those are quotes there. And then it can be tough, but biting your tongue and Picking your battles can help your mental health, too. 
And this is part of that um, R, R forward slash change my view uh, talks about. Uh, one of their users, Canada Constitution, put it this way. They said, a harmonious Thanksgiving is preferable to fights over social media. And that's true. What we have to keep in mind, and it's difficult, it's so difficult when we see people we care about getting into all this conspiratorial stuff. We have to keep in mind that our, our end goal should not be proving that we're right and they're wrong. Our end goal should be bringing them back into the fold, rebuilding that relationship, helping them know that you're there with them even though they kind of made some poor choices, right? Because we all make poor choices. Um, not every choice is necessarily as dangerous as some that we've seen lately, but they are still poor choices and we all make them. So being careful with our loved ones and picking those battles is also an important part. And I know it can be tough. Uh, I had a discussion with my mother who kind of got into some of this Trumpian conspiracy stuff a bit, and we had a discussion. She knows me enough to know that I'm very matter-of-fact. I'm not going to shy away from the truth just because it's uncomfortable. But at the same point, I found ways to connect to her on things that I knew she agreed upon with, with me, so that she didn't feel as though everything she was saying, I was just going, no, 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 you're dumb, you're wrong. Because that's not loving, and that's not going to get us anywhere productive. But at the end of that conversation, she was able to concede that, you know what, maybe I was wrong in some of the things I was thinking. You, you really brought some good points to me. That's what she had said to me. And so it is possible, friends, for those of you encountering that with people you care about, it is possible. I've seen it. I've done it. Um, now, granted, I have experience for several years in having done this out of life experience and military and so on. But anyone can do this. Another point that they make is that we have to realize that some people don't want to change, no matter the facts. You've heard me say the saying my mentor told me. That's what's being said here. In other words, right, they're saying the same thing, which is, I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. This article puts it in the words of, realize that some people don't want to change, no matter the facts. And, it, and nothing can be truer than what we see, especially in aspects of, like, uh, politics. Despite how much evidence has been presented against some of these things, the 5G towers dispensing COVID, the biological labs in China that created it and it was used as a population control thing, the fact that Bill Gates was a part of this conspiracy, all this stuff. Despite how much it gets debunked, when people double down on these things, out of defensive natures, you get nowhere. The best thing you can do is to connect to them, show them that you still care for them, even though you don't agree with some of the crazy things that may be coming out of their mouths that they may not even entirely understand. But they're repeating it because it connects to them on a, on a base level, right? It speaks to a concern or a hurt they're feeling. Another point is that if it gets too bad, there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm going to stop. Um, it's, it's an important element is to take a moment to calm down, to get yourself settled, um, 
if you're finding yourselves where you're not happy in the discussion and you're starting to find some anger developing or frustration, then just simply stop and say, you know what? I feel like we may be getting a little frustrated and I don't want us to be rude to each other or, or speak out of anger with each other. So can we put a pin in this for a little bit and just kind of settle down and then come back and talk a little more once you know we're both ready? I know it can be frustrating and it can be hard because you want to just deal with it right then and there. But our emotions, if we allow them to get the better of us, typically don't produce good results, especially when we're frustrated and angry and upset. Uh, so nothing wrong with backing off for a bit, taking a moment to cool down. In fact, it is the right thing to do, I'll say. Lastly, uh, remember that as the article puts it, every little bit helps. One conversation will probably not change a person's mind, and that's okay. Just like I've talked about, right? The idea of throwing the starfish back into the ocean. We may not be able to save all of them. We may not be able to engage every single starfish washed ashore. But with each one we can save and bring back into the water, it's a step in the right direction. And that's true here, too. Find ways to connect and, and agree with them when you can. Don't expect that you're going to win the battle. If it happens, great. But go into it with the approach of, instead of, I'm going to win, go into it with the approach of, how can I win my friend over and let them know I still care? Doesn't mean you can't disagree. But you can also find ways to agree with them while also disagreeing on other parts. So... Take it in that approach, a little at a time where you're able to keep your, your peace about you. If you need to step back, step back. Be kind. As you hear me say on every podcast, right? Be kind to one another, especially when you disagree. <laughs> this is why. If we can't, we become polarized, and then we see people isolate, and then you get confirmation bias going because they're only listening to sources telling them what they want to hear. And that's not a good way to be for any of us. So all of that said, let's move forward into a different article, which was, as I said, written talking about the different stages of um, grief as it relates to a relationship. And now, mind you, this is not this is not about relationships, but there's still some truth we can find there, right? This this still speaks to things that are worth speaking about. And so this one, as I said, is a article from Psychology Today written by Dr. Suzanne Lachman. So looking at this, what we want to keep in mind is that when we become disillusioned or we realize that some conspiracy we may have believed starts to fall apart, then dis disillusionment happens. And if we've alienated ourselves from people that have been our friends because we've been so uh, pig-headed about it, let's say, right? You've been just so stubborn that you've refer refused to find any ways to connect. And on both sides, right? If you've been so stubborn in wanting to prove them wrong that you couldn't find any ways to connect with them and be right with them, then it could, you start going through these grieving process, right? And so I think it's important that we consider the grieving process as it relates to breaking up because it's true for a person who starts to realize their worldview may be falling apart around them. 
So with that, uh, let's delve into what this Psychology Today article says about the seven stages of grieving a breakup and understanding that emotional response to a breakup and how that can help us uh, feel less alone, right? And this is true within conspiracy stuff. So the first thing it says, and I think it's important to, to kind of reference this because I think it's a valid thing to consider. It says, you may have known someone where within uh, some, nah, let me try that again. You may have known somewhere within you that this breakup was coming. And in the aspects of conspiracy, right, there may have been nuggets where you saw something as a conspiracy theorist within that that was like, wait a sec, I'm not sure. But you blew it off. Uh, even for months or years, you may have had that happening. And yet you're still blindsided by it. No matter how the lead up has looked, now that the breakup is actually happening, you may be finding yourself overwhelmed, immobilized, haunted by your fear, your loss, and despair about life without that person. Um, and there are stages that you'll go through, right? There's different stages that you can anticipate going through, and they often occur all at once. So I want to make that clear. When you're going through these stages of grieving, oftentimes in graphics, they're shown in some sort of a linear format. But the grieving process is by no means linear. You may bounce between all of them every day. You may bounce between one and then think you're at acceptance and then you're back at anger again. It, it's, it's kind of a, a process of bouncing around until you come to equilibrium. You stabilize again. So... Looking at that, let's let's kind of delve through what this article lists as seven stages of grieving. The first one it lists is being desperate for answers. The drive is uh, the drive to know is consuming and can come at the expense of rational thoughts and behaviors. And obviously, that happens when you get into conspiracies. You you might bite down on it because there's some nuggets of truth that are are there that you agree with. It's speaking on something that you may personally feel offended by. You know, let's say, for example, as I heard with one of my friends on social media, that they're frustrated with how politicians don't care about their constituents. And so that's something you can connect to. But they're, they're trying to find ways to, to believe things, even if it's not true, because they relate to it in some way, even at an emotional basis. So they're looking for answers. Uh, they'll typically swing back and forth between foggy disbelief, the daily moment-by-moment -moment rediscovery of the magnitude of their loss, flashes of painful clarity, um, the pain, the disorganization, the confusion, the confusion can become all that they can tend to think about or talk about. And this is a process. So if you see people that are conspiratorial that are starting to do this, this is a sign they may be entering the grieving process. They may be becoming disillusioned with their worldview, with their conspiracies they may have believed. That's a good thing. Encourage that, support that, be kind, find ways to relate. You can still disagree with certain viewpoints and challenge them with the Socratic method to try and defend that point, but understand that if they're doing this, they're probably already starting to question it themselves, and that's good. That's good. 
Another stage of the grieving process is denial. And typically I have found you see that early on. A lot more you see that early on. Um, with denial, they're, they just can't say that it's true. Uh, they'll, you may hear things like, this isn't happening, this can't be true. No, they're, they're lying or whatever, right? It's denial. Uh, and it feels like you've been put, like you've put everything you are into this viewpoint, right? This, this belief. And it's been your world, your life. You've wrapped your identity around it, perhaps. And you can't accept that it's over. You can't accept that it's not true. And so you'll, funny, you'll funnel every last bit of your own energy into trying to desperately save it at the expense of your own well-being even, at the expense of relationships, maybe even your career, as we certainly have seen as they've been tracking, the FBI has been tracking people down that invaded the U.S. Capitol. Some people have lost their jobs thanks to some internet sleuths who detected things on people like job company badges and things like that. So denial is another stage you see. So if you see someone who's been in that stuff coming to those stages of denial and they're just so heavily denying it no matter the cost, that's a sign that they may actually know that it's not true, but they just can't acknowledge it yet. That's good. That's a good sign. Another thing is bargaining. And when we talk about bargaining, what that means is that these people are willing to do anything to avoid accepting it's over. Uh, they'll, you'll see things like, you know, them committing to being better and, and you know, being more attentive. Um, uh, they'll try to make right with things. The, the thought of them being without that uh, becomes so intolerable that they'll make their own pain go that you they'll make their own pain go away by winning them back right and so you'll see that happen at at this logical point there's probably not a lot that you can do right you're standing on the edge of what feels like an abyss trying not to fall into the unknown uh, you cling to any hope you can to prevent yourself from losing what you've come to know and depend on for better or worse. And so in this place, right, the bargaining, you're going to see people trying to uh, bargain with you if they've had a, if they've created some challenge in your relationship. The bargaining means they realize they've messed up the relationship potentially. And they're trying to find ways to relate without having to give up anything. And obviously that's not the right direction, but connection is good. So when you see that, that's another means by which people are showing that they're going through those stages of grieving. Um, also in regard to bargaining, reality inevitably comes crashing down over and over again around them, and that can be very disparaging. Uh, when you bargain, right, so when a person is bargaining, they're trying to take responsibility for why things didn't work, which may give you the illusion that they have control over it, right? So that's something to be aware of. It gives you the illusion that they have control over it. 
but perpetuating the belief that it's salvageable as long as you can just keep performing superhuman acts is not possible. So recognize if your friend's trying to bargain with you and yet they're still clinging on to the conspiracy theories, they're going through these stages of grieving. They're struggling to figure out who they are and they're trying to find a means to reconnect with people. Do it. Reconnect with them. That doesn't mean you have to hide away from things they say that aren't true, but try to find more ways to connect with them on things that you can agree upon than only the things that they dis you disagree upon. Try to find your make your goal about winning them over as opposed to being right. Another aspect of grief that we see people tend to do is falling into a relapse, right? The pain can become so intolerable, maybe they've alienated themselves with from people so much that they cared about that they don't have those relationships. So as they go into those things, they may fall into a relapse. The pain is so intolerable that they actually, they may actually be able to convince themselves to try again or convince others to try again. Um, and you, despite their best efforts, they will not be able to carry it through. Uh, so it's unfortunate that we have to say this, but it probably will won't end well, right? So if you get reconnected in them and they stay in that and you're just walking with them, staying quiet, it won't end well. You'll probably find yourself in more problems. So there's a tendency for them to relapse. It can happen. This is them struggling and trying to figure out how to make sense of who they are and what life is, despite what's happened. And another one that you're going to see commonly, and this will show up all over the place, is anger. Initially, uh, as the article says, right, initially you may not be able to connect with feelings of anger. Um, breaking up, right, is what it's talking about because this is about relationships, right? But I'll say it the same way because it still feels that way, I think, in these situations. Breaking up plummets you into the unknown, which can evoke immobilizing fear and dread. Uh, and, and that fear can overcome the anger. Uh, so then when the anger sets in, because you have so much fear, at least temporarily, right, um, you kind of let go of some of that fear because the anger kind of overpowers. So you'll see people become angry and they bounce back and forth through all of this stuff. It happens. Um, and it's paralyzing, it's self-defeating, because it can just cause more harm, it can alienate them more. So this is why I say it's important as much as you can to try and connect with them with kindness. Uh, try to take the approach of how to win your friend back, your loved one back, as opposed to being right. It doesn't mean you can't talk about truth and address fallacy. But knowing how to do it in a way where they feel respected and heard and cared for. Remember, how and what questions are your great help. Uh, mirroring is a great help in situations like this. And then you'll come into a later stage, typically, which is initial acceptance. And this is a kind of acceptance, but it's not full acceptance. You'll, you'll see it happen earlier in the process. Um, Sometimes around the bargaining stage, you'll when you see bargaining going on, a lot of times you may tend to see this kind of initial acceptance. 
uh, and it can feel more like a surrender, right? Uh, they're holding their they're holding their end up because they have to, or you're holding your end up because you have to, not because you want to, right? And so they may not necessarily agree with you, but they may try to reconnect with you because they're going into what this this initial acceptance. It doesn't mean they've actually accepted they're wrong and that they they've made some mistakes, they may have damaged some relationships, but they're testing the waters, if you will. Um, and so over time, this initial kind of acceptance, often uh, the acceptance becomes more substan substantive as it goes forward, right? You'll see it become more believable, it's more solid, it's more consistent. But at first, you'll see just these kind of hint hints of acceptance. And I would challenge you to be careful when you see that. That doesn't mean it's over. That's why asking lots of questions is useful. That's why con con continuing to connect with them. That's why mirroring, asking these how and why questions, the Socratic method of challenging them to show you where they're getting this from without being like, no, you're wrong, helps you because they're going to eventually realize some, make some mistakes and realize and it's going to be of value for them to have someone that can accept them even with their mistakes because we all make them. And then finally we move into another stage and that is redirected hope. Um, at this point you feel completely decimated by the realization that these ideals you may have had didn't work. And you're now going to have to let go of this, right? Maybe this thing you've wrapped around as your identity. And as that acceptance deepens, right, and, and you start moving forward with it, you start acting upon it more, uh, and you have people that, that I, like I'm encouraging you to do, that are supportive along the process, then it makes it easier for them to take more and more acceptance and to step away from it because they aren't stepping away from what they thought was a part of them into nothing, but instead they're stepping into something of meaning and value. And friends, let me just say this. If you, if you are willing to engage in this process, and it's a difficult one, but valuable, I would venture to bet more often than not, you will have built a stronger friendship with that person than it was before this. Because when they see that you're willing to stick with them, even when they're acting a fool, and you can still show them love and, and connect with them and, and acknowledge truth with them where you're able to, despite things you may disagree upon, you will help them and your relationship will be the better for it if you can maintain and be strong enough. So when they come to that redirected hope, the hope is somewhere in the their reserves, right? And when they gain access to it again, uh, it allows them to uh, make some meaningful distance between them and that stuff they were believing. So it is possible for people to go through this. And I would say as you as you encounter these situations with loved ones around you who maybe have gotten into this stuff, Remember that if you can commit to those things, 
um, the if you can acknowledge that those step those seven stages of grieving may be going on if you can commit to being kind right always speaking respectfully be, uh, being private when you can in conversations with them testing the waters and understanding where they're at agreeing with them where you're able to using that truth sandwich of fact fallacy fact using the socratic method to challenge them to present their own arguments for their defense if you can commit to doing those things um, then you have a far better chance of seeing your friend or your loved one come out of this um, and hopefully not delve back in again now as you've heard me say in a previous podcast we already know that there are studies that show some people have elevated levels of dopamine in their body naturally. And as the studies showed, people with that have a higher tendency of believing at least one major conspiracy theory or more. And so keep that in mind as well. You may be dealing with someone who actually physiologically, chemistry-wise, can't help but fall for these because they have higher than normal level dopamine. And it it reinforces these things, or at least it can. Well, friends, this has been a rather longer episode than usual, but it was very important information that I wanted to share, and I just wanted to share a little bit also about things of interest that I've seen. For those that are listening in, that heard me talking about in this episode about me being interviewed by NPR for All Things Considered and Consider This, I don't know if they'll include my interview in there in its entirety or segment of it or how that'll go, but that episode, according to the producer, is due to come out end of this week. And when I say end of this week, that is Monday, January 11th is today as I'm doing this podcast. So it should be this Friday uh, or thereabouts that it should come out. So I may be in that. And so I'm, I'm encouraged that we are seeing this dialogue happening, even in larger entities like NPR that are trying to address this and understand it. And I'm glad that I have you, my friends, in this community who are interested in growing and learning every day and becoming better and figuring out how to make the world better and kinder. And that starts with you. So dear friends, as always, Stay curious, stay kind, be good to one another, find ways to be kind to each other every day, especially with those you disagree with. Be supportive with one another. And as we move into this year, let's move forward with optimism and kindness at heart. Let's try to do the best we can. We won't always do it well, but let's do the best we can. And when we fail, let's stand up and move forward again to make at least as much as we can this world better, to save as many of those starfish washed ashore as we can, and recognize it's not about quantity. Each one we can save is worth it. Dear friends, I wish you a wonderful day, a wonderful week, and... We will talk to you on the next episode. Until then, stay kind, stay curious, and keep searching this massive world of information and curiosities that we live in. Much love to you, friends. Bye-bye.